Let us once again go to our great God and cry out for his help, for his mercy. Oh Lord, we come to you again on this wonderful Lord's Day that you've given to us to rest in your goodness and your grace, to gather together worshiping you. Lord, we're thankful for the means of grace as the Spirit is using them as we trust effectually to the calling of the lost, the building up of the saints. Lord, we're thankful that, that you, the one true and living God, whose thoughts are high above the thoughts of your creatures, whose wisdom is beyond our wisdom, whose knowledge is complete, who knows all things. Lord, we are thankful that you have given to us your word, that we might know what it is that you want us to know, and that the Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to truth. So we ask that this evening. May he give us energy of body and mind. May we keep our hearts fixed upon our Savior. And may he teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, we're continuing our move through the gospel according to Luke. We'll be looking at verses 44 through 49 as you're... Turning to that passage again, Luke's written to confirm the certainty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this evening, we've moved from our last time together, uh, last Sunday evening as Christ was upon the cross, crucifixion was taking place. This evening, we see Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, the sacrificial atoning death taking place. It's a follow along. As I read, God's perfect and errant and sufficient word. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance Watching these things. You may have noticed in your short or long or perhaps medium length life, depending on where you are and in years that the Lord has given you under the sun. You may have noticed that people, people want justice. Now sometimes... Thankfully, people want justice for other people. Often, almost 100% of the time, people want justice for themselves, or at least what they consider justice. Praise the Lord whenever that is biblical justice that folks are crying out for and what God reveals to us. Sadly, there are other times when folks desire pseudo-justice, justice from the world. I don't know what, I mean, have you thought about that? Pretty consistent cry for justice. Why is it you think 
folks want justice in life. Many folks want justice in the next life. I think an aspect of that is that we're made in God's image. God is a holy and just God, and being made in his image, we also desire to see his sovereign, perfect justice worked out. The gospel is about sin and God's justice and dealing with sin and the redemption of his people. And, and we see even in the short passage here in, in, in the death of Christ, working out of that very thing. And what I, what I hope we'll see and what I pray that the, the Spirit will teach us is that Jesus' death accomplished salvation for his people through the satisfaction of God's just judgment on sin. And we're going to look at three things this evening. The requirement of Jesus Christ's death, the reality of Jesus Christ's death, and the response of Jesus Christ's death. So first, the requirement of Jesus Christ's death. Jesus Christ had to die. Had to die because God is holy, loving, and just. Brings up a couple of questions that we, that we have. You know, anyone who's worked with children, maybe a parent, grandparent, perhaps you've taught Sunday school, or you've had another situation where you've been able to spend time with nieces or nephews or whatever it may be. You know, children, they like to ask questions. And when, when children bring questions, and, and questions from, a, uh, from real curiosity, a desire to know answers and to, to gain knowledge and, and wisdom, that's a good thing. We, we rejoice in that. Even if it does slow our day down, we have to stop all things to, to seek to answer those questions. And then there's the other question. Children bring questions more not from a desire to seek knowledge, but more from a, sometimes, a little bit of a, a disrespectful slant. It's a way that they might be able to come and say, well, why? 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 I, I need to know this. I need to know that. It's not good enough that... You've asked me to do this. It's not good enough that you've said this is this. I, you know, why? So as we ask questions and we, and we look here, we want to be like the children who are crying out to their father. We want to understand. Teach us. Not that we would look at God's perfect ways with an attitude of why would God do such a thing? How could God do such a thing? For his plans are perfect. God knows best. He's sovereign for a reason. So as we've looked at, as we've been moving our way through the gospel according to Luke, we've we've touched on over and over and over again the the reality and the truth, the Old Testament prophecies that have pointed forward to Christ and who he is and what he's doing, what his mission is, what he's accomplishing. We even had the opportunity in our Old Testament reading to read from Psalm 16 to get a window into the aspect of Christ on the cross, Jesus' death. These things are before us. The Old Testament prophets have foretold that Jesus Christ's death was to come, to come the sinless Messiah who would die under the punishment of God for the sins of his people. As we look at the Old Testament scriptures, we see that's what's been building, that's what we've been moving towards. That's what 
should have been understood and seen by those who were there if their eyes had not been closed by the Spirit or had not been opened. But again, as we look at this reality and the requirement and the need for this, God is holy. And in his perfect justice, he cannot allow sin to stand unpunished. And out of his love, we see the punishment taken by our Savior that he might redeem all those who trust in him. You, me, the brethren around the world. Those who have gone before us, the church triumphant. Those whom God has appointed unto salvation until the return of our Savior. We see that Jesus Christ, it's not just that he had to die, but he willingly died for the salvation of his sinful, lost people. The bride that was given to him. We see, we go back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis 3, we see the, the first picture of of the gospel given to us, and it's that promise. Promise that the Messiah would come, would deal with this problem, crush the head of the serpent. That first glimpse of the gospel that we see there, and then you can turn to Ephesians 1, and, and you get this beautiful picture of the grand meta-narrative of redemptive history. Seeing what it is that the our triune God in perfect wisdom, predestined for all of redemptive history. The saving and choosing and giving of a bride to our Savior who redeemed the church. We read of his, his willingness in, in John chapter 10, verse 17. As Christ is speaking, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Willingly, Christ. He is the one that has the authority. We've, we've been looking at that up to this point. He's been seeking to accomplish his mission. He's not being pushed around. He's not calling audibles. He's been on task. Sovereignly in control of these things. Willingly going about the salvation of his people. Bringing us to this very moment on the cross. This atoning moment in his death. Have you ever had somebody do something for you? But they kind of did it begrudgingly. You know, they had to do it. Maybe, maybe at work. Somebody got partnered up with you to help you with a project or do something. And they didn't want to work with you. They don't like you. But they were told by the boss, you got to do this. Or you know, maybe at some point in your life, uh, you've even done that. Someone's needed something or you've had to do something. But you didn't really want to do it. But you did it anyways for whatever the reason may be. In that moment, whether you were the one who was, who was helping or the one that was being helped, what, what did it feel like? I mean, yeah, you're thankful it's happening, but this, this begrudging aspect, the, the loss of love and thankfulness that's taking place and part of the, the care, it's not a great thing, not a wonderful thing. 
robs the joy a little bit of the, the situation. But that's not what we see here with Christ. We don't see a begrudging Savior. We don't see a Savior who was dragged and put upon the, the cross, kicking and screaming and fighting every way he can to get away from it. But instead, we see a Savior who goes out of love for his people. A Savior that, that loves you, dear saints. A Savior that would go to the cross and bear the penalty for your sins. Because of what you matter to him. Because Christ loves you. The requirement of, of Jesus Christ's death. And, and then we, in our passage, we come to the reality of Jesus Christ's death. We see it before as we read it. It's recorded. Not to spoil the, the ending, but thank the Lord, very soon we're going to get to his resurrection. He is still not dead. He is alive. So I spoiled that part. But the reality of Jesus Christ's death, you know, Jesus, his death, it's surrounded by miraculous signs. Now, God's a supernatural God. Sadly, from time to time, there are Christians who are embarrassed by that, or they think that that causes them to lose a saying, or an ability to talk and share the gospel, and whatever it may be. But we serve a supernatural God, period, who created time and space from nothing. Simply by the power of his word. A supernatural God. Who sustains and controls all things. He's not bound by his creation. So as we move into this and we see these miraculous things that are happening. Now more things are recorded in the other gospels. But, but just here we're going to stick with what Luke has. We see God working miraculously, supernaturally above and beyond his, his creation. Uh, there is a, a speaking of darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. This is basically from 12 noon to about 3 o'clock. For about three hours you have a darkness. And it's not just a coincidence. It isn't just that, oh, wow, this is amazing. Just, it just so happened that there was an eclipse or, you know, well, you know, the Passover was celebrated at full moon. So that made that difficult. I guess perhaps someone could say, well, you know, a storm just happened to blow in, but, but again, a, a storm that might bring a darkness across the whole land for that time, I mean, it's possible. I don't think we really need to be worried about walking through how God did it, other than just to know he did. He brought darkness to the land. And this darkness was a representation, it was showing, it was, it was clear, it, it was a picture of God's judgment being poured out upon Christ for the sins that he was bearing. This darkness was a picture of judgment against your sins. It was a picture so that all those in that land would be cast into the darkness. Once again, maybe, the Spirit might be working, convicting them of what it is that they had done. There's, there's many places we could go in the Scriptures to see this, so you don't think... I'm just making this up. But one example, Zephaniah, one of your favorite Old Testament books. Flip to it right now, Zephaniah chapter 1. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. 
The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the the lofty battlements. That's just one of numerous examples where, where the picture of darkness on the land is a is a picture of judgment, God's judgment. I think what we see here is this darkness that is settled as the wrath of God is being poured out upon Christ as he's, he's bearing the sins of his, of his people. We see judgment of God, God's justice being poured out and met upon these sins. And then it's not just darkness that we see, these miraculous supernatural things. Luke also records on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not just darkness, but but the ripping, the ripping of the curtain in the temple. And Matthew and Mark record that it was ripped from the top down. They make that point to make it clear. This is God ripping it. There are some that say this is a picture of, of... The Lord leaving the temple, not dwelling there anymore, perhaps. But but what we clearly see is that we know the Lord Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. And what he has done in his atoning death is he has done away with all of that foreshadowing smells and bells that were looking to him, pointing to him. And now that he has accomplished the salvation of his people, he's, he's atoned for their sin. He has now opened the door to fellowship and communion with God through him. No longer is there a barrier between God and man. No longer is it just one high priest once a year that could go into the, the Holy of Holies. He might, for just a moment, be in the presence of God now. Has been that barrier has been removed by Christ, and again it's three o'clock in the in the afternoon. You can imagine how full the temple is. There's darkness that's already beset the area. Now you see the the curtain is ripped from top to bottom. How must the Spirit been convicting those who had just been involved? And the machinations of putting Christ on the cross, humanly speaking. So God is working supernaturally. He's working miraculously to, to do these things. Praise God. As we see the picture of what's happening, the atoning death of Christ, justice is being met. The wrath of God is being poured out penalty for these sins is being paid and in that Christ is opening a way for all those in him to fellowship and eternal life with our great God and then we see right at the end Luke doesn't put things exactly in chronological order he doesn't give us the the death of Christ and then The tearing of the curtain, the rending of the curtain. 
but looking at the other Gospels, imagining what's happened, that's probably how it went. But, but we see Jesus Christ crying out to the Father. We see the, the entrusting, the faith, the relationship. After 48 hours or so of exhaustion, humiliation, all that he has endured, and then particularly what has really been wearing upon him, the pouring out of the wrath of God upon the sins of his people placed upon him. At that point, he, he cries out as is recorded here in, in Luke, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. As Calvin wrote on this for the inward sadness of his soul was so powerful and violent that it forced him to break out into a cry. And then he writes, though the perception of the flesh would have led him to dread destruction, still in his heart, faith remained firm. And again, he goes on to say, the divine nature gave way to the weakness of the flesh so far as was necessary for our salvation that Christ might accomplish all that was required of the Redeemer. Still, we come back to some of those questions. Of course, we want to be very careful. This is where we just need to sit back and start worshiping, be in awe of what God did and is recorded for us and we see here but there are some questions how is it that the God man died have you thought about that the Lord Jesus Christ second person of the Trinity has come and taken on flesh and we understand the hypostatic union human nature, divine nature. How is it that, that the God-man might go to the cross and give up his spirit and die and breathe his last? Well, we rightly say, we can rightly say that, that Jesus died on the cross. It's obvious. The cross is what Paul preached, he looked to. We proclaim, and we're looking forward to even now. We're excited about it. We're going to get to the fact that we're going to soon be preaching through the resurrection. So, yes, Jesus, Jesus died rightly on the cross. If he hadn't have died on the cross, then there'd be no atonement for sin. But it is the God-man's human nature that died, not as divine as Sproul writes. God not only created the universe, he sustains it by the very power of his being. You can even think of Colossians 1 there. What's, we're told by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about Christ, he's holding all things together. As Paul said in Acts 17, 28, in him we live and, and move and have our very being. If, if the being of God ceased for even one second, the universe would disappear. It would pass out of existence because nothing can exist apart from the sustaining power of God. If God dies, everything dies with him. Obviously then, God could not have perished on the cross. 
Christ, Lord Jesus Christ in his divine nature, did not die. He did it as human. We can proclaim that. We're thankful for it. Praise God for it. So we see the requirement of Jesus Christ's death. We see the reality of Jesus Christ's death. We've been looking in it. And then we come to the last few verses and we see the response of Jesus Christ's death. The response to it. How those who saw it reacted. And, and Jesus Christ's death garnered a response then. We see it. It's recorded for us. Particularly we're going to look at the one here in, in Luke. I don't know if you've ever watched response videos. It's kind of a, a genre, a niche on YouTube where, and, and this is going to maybe sound crazy, but there's people who make money recording a video, looking at someone else's video, and responding to it. It's kind of weird, but it, it happens. And, and they're responding to what they see. Uh, social media itself, you know, it's full of just a lot of its pictures of pets, kids, grandkids, that kind of thing. Look at me, selfie here and there. But there's also a big aspect of social media where people are just responding to everything that's going on around them in their life, things that are happening on the big scene, things that happen really small. And you know, sometimes it's enjoyable to read through. Other times it's a little uh, monotonous, crazy. That's a response that they're making. And we see responses here. All this has happened. It's been dark. The, the curtain's been rent. Christ cries out. He, he breathes last. He dies. And then we see responses. The first response that's recorded for us is this Roman centurion who was in charge of the whole crucifixion. He was in charge of bringing these three to their death. It was his job. His job was to make sure that they died orderly, as they should under Roman execution, and then to make sure they're actually dead. So that was his job. So he's paying attention. He's not just hanging out, drinking coffee. He's making sure this is done right. And his response, after seeing all these things, he, he praises God, cries out, certainly this man was innocent, Believing that he'd just overseen the execution of an innocent man. I think when the praising of God, believing who Jesus is. In the second, we see the, ga- the crowd that's gathered. Uh, one commentary said about this crowd that they came to witness a show, they left with feelings of woe. They walked away beating their breasts. In the midst of what they saw, they were, for whatever got them there, they were caught up in the excitement, they were, they were wanting to see this person who'd been vilified, this rabble-rouser, put to death and be done with, or perhaps they just had been swept up, and they thought, you know, a week ago we were praising this man as the Messiah, and now he's being executed, I, I've got to see this, I don't know. Same reason why when things happen, we all get to our phones and we get to TVs and we want to just see and learn and and, and figure out what is going on. This crowd is gathered around. They're there. They're witnessing this. They see all of these things happen that we've talked about. They see Christ die and then they leave beating their breasts. They leave feeling the weight, I think we see, of the guilt of what has just happened. 
lamenting. Even as we saw last week, the the prayer of Christ, perhaps this is the seeds that the Spirit is beginning to work with, right? At this moment that in just a little over a month at Pentecost, as Peter gets up to preach, after the Holy Spirit has been poured out and the New Covenant era begins and he preaches and he explains everything that's happening, he's proclaiming it to the people, it's recorded there that 3,000, 3,000 God saves in that moment. How, in, in the midst of this, what seeds is the Spirit planting? What, what, what portion of this crowd may have been there at Pentecost? I don't know. Look forward one day in heaven. Maybe we'll know. Be joyous to see how the Spirit worked through this. Then the third group that we see off at a distance, watching Christ's acquaintances, and then as Luke does, he, he goes out of his way to make sure that, that we see the, the women who've been following Christ and supporting him, who've been there for his teaching. As we saw earlier in Luke, supporting the preaching of the word, they're there as well. And we're going to see them again before Luke is closed. Now when we look at the other gospel accounts, we know that that John is there. He's at least close enough to hear Christ as Christ speaks to him. It seems apparent that some, at least, some of the disciples have scattered and are hiding. Some of the acquaintances, perhaps these are some of the 120 that are in the upper room together when the Spirit is poured out. Some of his acquaintances are at a distance. They're there, again, with the women Witnessing the death of Christ. Luke doesn't record in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit any of the names of these acquaintances, but he does again point out the women. So I think we should not blow by that and pay attention to it. Christ's death continues to to cause responses, not just then, not just what we see here in these, these three groups, folks, people, but but he still causes responses even now. Responses of conviction, responses of faith, responses of rebellion, depending upon how the Spirit is working. This probably isn't new news. This probably isn't something that's earth-shattering to mention. Maybe it pops a bubble or two, but I think it's pretty clear. We've moved into a phase, at least here, if it's in the West, particularly here in the United States, I think we've moved into a phase culturally where there's hostility towards the church. We are beyond the church doesn't matter, who cares about you, which then was before there was a period where, you know, there were some people there was a benefit just to be around the church. Now we've moved around to where... Naming the name of Christ makes you a pariah. There's cultural hostility towards Christianity, the church, the Bible. Of course, we remember Psalm 2. As Christ sits and laughs. The schemes of kingdoms. Remember Matthew 16, just verse 18. As Christ says... I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
So in the midst of this cultural hostility that, that we're in and it's going to probably most likely continue, we need to remember that. Christ has said, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We go to the end of Matthew, the Great Commission. Before he gives it, what is it that Jesus says in chapter 28, verse 18, as he comes to them? Now, they're worshiping him. Some are doubting. And then he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he said, the, the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against the church. I'm going to build the church. I have all authority in heaven on earth. It's all mine. Let's go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you always to the end of age, my church. We're probably going to be living a little bit like the first century Christians, second century Christians, third century. And as this hostility comes towards us, we need to remember that the folks bringing it need the gospel and the love of Christ. So as we look here, I, I pray that we will be standing like John, as is recorded in other gospels, the acquaintances, the women that are there, that haven't fled, that haven't disappeared. They're standing there witnessing Christ, and that by faith we might, yes, proclaim the gospel, the atoning death of Christ, but also his resurrection, which we're going to see shortly, looking to it by faith, and not only his resurrection, but his, his coming, his return. So we look to the death of, of Christ here. And remember that Jesus' death accomplished salvation for his people, the satisfaction of God's just judgment on sin. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we continue to move through your word and as we've seen Christ taken to the cross and now his atoning death upon him, Lord, we, we praise your name. We are not worthy of your love and your grace. And we look forward even now to hear the resurrection of our Savior. For that is our hope and that is what we proclaim. We serve a living Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.